0: Uh, so if you could, go ahead and stand up with me. Uh, we're going to read 2 Kings 2, 1-25. Uh, through 25. <clears throat> uh, We stand up just kind of acknowledging that uh, the word that we're reading now is not merely uh, written by men, but it's God's word, and so we're honoring it um, by standing. So it says this in 2 Kings chapter 2. Now when the Lord was about to take Elijah up to heaven by a whirlwind... Elijah and Elisha were on their way from Gilgal, and Elijah said to Elisha, Please stay here, for the Lord has sent me as far as Bethel. But Elisha said, As the Lord lives, and as you yourself live, I will not leave you. So they went down to Bethel, and the sons of the prophets who were at Bethel came out to Elisha and said to him, Do you know that today the Lord will take away your master from over you? And he said, Yes, I know it. Keep quiet. But he said, "'As the Lord lives and as you yourself live, I will not leave you.' So the two of them went on. Fifty men of the sons of the prophets also went and stood at a distance from them, as they both were standing by the Jordan. Then Elijah took his cloak and rolled it up and struck the water, and the water was parted to one side and to the other, till the two of them could go over on dry ground. When they had crossed, Elijah said to Elisha, "'Ask what I shall do for you.' Before I am taken from you. And Elisha said, Please let there be a double portion of your spirit on me. And he said, "Uh, You have asked a hard thing. If you see me as I am being taken from you, it shall be so for you. But if you do not see me, it shall not be so. And as they still went on and talked, behold, chariots of fire and horses of fire separated the two of them. And Elijah went up by a whirlwind into heaven. And Elisha saw it, and he cried, My father, My father, the chariots of Israel and its horsemen. And he saw him no more. Then he took hold of his own clothes and tore them in two pieces. And he took up the cloak of Elijah that had fallen from him and went back and stood on the bank of the Jordan. Then he took the cloak of Elijah that had fallen from him and struck the water, saying, Where is the Lord, the God of Elijah? And when he had struck the water, the water was parted to the one side and to the other, and Elisha went over. Now when the sons of the prophets who were with uh, we're at Jericho, saw him opposite them, they said, The spirit of Elijah rests on Elisha. And they came to meet him and bowed to the ground before him. And they said to him, Behold, now there were, uh, are with you your servants 50 strong men. Please let them go and seek your master. It may be that the spirit of the Lord has caught him up and cast him upon some mountain or into some valley. And he said, You shall not send. But when they urged him till he was ashamed, he said, Send. They then sent 50 men, and for three days they sought him, but did not find him. And they came back to to him while he was staying at Jericho, and he said to him, Did I not say to you, Do not go? Now the men of the city said to Elisha, Behold, the situation of the city is pleasant as my Lord sees, but the water is bad and the land is unfruitful. He said, Bring me a new bowl and put salt in it. So they brought it to him, and they went to the spring of water and threw salt in it and said... Thus says the Lord, I have healed this water, from now on neither death nor miscarriage shall come from it. So the water has been healed to this day according to the word that Elisha spoke. He went up from there to Bethel, and while he was going up on the way, some small boys came out of the city and jeered at him, saying, Go up, you bald head, go up, you bald head. And he turned around, and when he saw them, he cursed them in the name of the Lord. And two she-bears came out of the woods and tore forty-two of the boys. From there he went to Mount Carmel, and from there he returned to Samaria. The word of the Lord. Uh, Pray with me. Father, uh, we ask that your spirit would accompany your word, that you would reveal to us your truth, that it would um, shape and mold our hearts to be more like Christ. And Lord, we are desperate that you would reveal your glory to us in the face of Jesus. Open your scriptures to us. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. I hear some feedback. I don't know if y'all hear that. Okay. Try turning it on and off. Oh, stop. Is it gone? It's gone. Maybe. I don't know. We'll see. All right, so... Historically speaking, um, the Jews held that Joshua, Judges, First and Second Samuel, and 1 uh, and Second King, Kings were part of the section of the Bible called the prophets. Right? Normally we think of them as like historical books, right? historical narrative books. But the, the Jews held them to be part of the prophets in the Hebrew Bible. So uh, a little bit later on, the Bible is translated from Hebrew into Greek. And this becomes what's known as the Septuagint. And the word order of the books changes. And so now in our Bible, the English Bible, right, the ESV or whatever version we're reading in English, it usually follows the Greek order. So you have First and Second Chronicles right after First and Second Kings. But the Jews actually held that the kings were part of the prophets. The Chronicles were part of the writings or the Psalms was kind of the shorthand form of it. Now, why did they do that? Well, they held... That the kings were written by prophets. And the, the chronicles were actually written by priests. Ezra and likely some other priests also helped him with the chronicles. And so the kings were prophetic and the chronicles were priestly. Prophetic books take the law of Moses, the covenant of God with his people, and they put it out in front of the people and they point out where the people are not obeying God. And they call them to repentance to obey God, to restore their covenant with God, uh, and then if they don't repent, eventually the prophets bring the word of God of judgment to them, saying, "Because you've refused to obey, God is now judging you according to His law." Priests, however, um, you know their 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 role in Israel was not to bring the word of God before people and then the judgment of God before people, but rather to assure that people, when they do repent of their sin. They are going back and restoring their relationship with God in the manner that he requires. In essence, sacrifice, right? And so they would make sacrifices on behalf of the, the people to restore their relationship with God. So if you're reading Chronicles, you'll notice when you, when you put it next to Kings, some of the same stories. There's a little bit more of an optimistic tone to it. All right, so there's, a, there's an upbeat tone to it because it focuses on the temple or our, the people's relationship with God. Another thing is it, it focuses on the idea of forgiveness that's given by God on behalf of a sacrifice made for the people. And so there's an upbeat to it. But Kings, rather, highlights, as we saw from the video, right? It's a little bit dark. Uh, Kings highlights the sin and the disobedience of the people of God in this time. And it reveals God's word of judgment against them. So priests restore and then prophets bring down God's word uh, for the people to repent of. So let me show you something here. So in First and Second Kings, at the end of uh, a rule of a king, it'll often say something along these lines. Now the rest of the acts of Ahaziah, or whatever the king is, uh, and that he did, are they not written in the book of Chronicles of the kings of Israel? Chronicles also does something uh, similar. The acts of Asa, from first to last, are written in the book of the kings of Judah, In Israel. So, even the Bible itself is actually pointing us to the fact that we, when we're reading the prophetic word, the prophetic take of a king, we should also consult a priestly take of the king, right? Because we need both. We need God's prophetic word to us, calling us to repentance, but we also need his priestly word, a restoring of our relationship with him, appointing us to the sacrifice ultimately that Christ himself is. So, first and second kings is a prophetic book and so we're looking uh through that lens so as we delve into second kings uh, chapter two i kind of want to catch us up right because we're starting a, a new book technically we're not right first and second kings again from the hebrews it's one book so it's just one book so technically we're just starting the second half of kings and uh chapter one um we find the evil king Ahaziah. This is the son of Jezebel and Ahab, right? Ahab just died, and now we're, we're under the reign of Ahaziah, his son. And we find him, he literally falls through the lattice. And he's on his bed from the fall. It was a great fall. And he's on his bed, and he's wondering, am I going to die? And so he sends out his men... To go inquire. And you would think he would send out his men to the prophets of God, of Yahweh. But instead, he actually sends them out to require of Baal, Zebub. Two words, right? Baal, which just means Lord, and Zebub means flies. So he sends them out to the Lord of the Flies, uh, which is a Canaanite God, um, instead of Yahweh. Elijah meets these men along the way. And he says to them, uh, your master will not recover. He will die on his bed. Um, And he says, go back and tell your master this. And so they go back and they tell Ahaziah. And Ahaziah's like, who's this guy that you guys just listened to and then came back and brought this message? They give kind of a physical description. He's wearing a hairy cloak. Uh, He's got a belt of leather wrapped around him. And he's like, oh, that's Elijah. So he knew who it was. His response wasn't one of repentance. It wasn't one of, here's the prophetic word from God, Yahweh himself saying, I'm going to die. Like Hezekiah later on, he's going to repent, right? And he's going to pray to God to restore his relationship. He doesn't react that way. Instead, he decides to send out 50 soldiers with a captain to likely either, A, arrest Elijah, or B, kill him, get rid of him. So he sends out the soldiers, and they meet Elijah, and Elijah is at Mount Carmel. The same place where he has his famous showdown with the prophets of Baal, right? And they're having their little altar showdown. and He calls down fire from heaven and God responds to his sacrifice and not the, the Baal prophets, right? So the same place, these 50 men come up and they're like, man of God, come with us, right? And Elijah responds by saying, if I'm a man of God, then let the fire come down from heaven and consume you. And it happens. 50 more come. And the same kind of mentality, Come with us, right? Same kind of mentality, we're going to arrest you, we're probably going to kill you. And he says, if I'm a man of God, then let fire come down from heaven and consume you. The third captain in the third set of 50, he comes and he falls on his knees and he implores Elijah to see his life and the life of his 50 men as precious. And he also says that I and these 50 men are your servants. So he identifies himself as saying, you are a prophet of Yahweh, we are your servants an angel comes and he tells Elijah, go with these men, uh, you can trust them. And then he goes, he delivers his word to ah- Ahaziah himself, and then the chapter ends with Ahaziah dying according to the word of Yahweh. And so that's chapter 1. As we're getting into chapter 2, we're now going to focus on Elijah and his ascension. Elijah is about to leave, and the question becomes, if Elijah leaves, who is going to represent God's word to the people who's going to take his place is someone going to take his place and so let's look at uh, 2 second Kings 2 I've tried to structure um, this sermon to the structure of the actual text in the text um, chapter 2 it's a chiasm uh, you can put up the first slide I think I actually have it up here in theory next oh maybe it's not well I did have it up here. So the sermon series, uh, it, it follows um, point one, point two, point three, point four. And then it's, oh, it's up there. There it is. Sweet. So point one goes all the way down and it matches with the, the bottom point one. Point two goes all the way down and matches the bottom point two. Point three matches the bottom point three. And then point four stands alone. This is a chiasm. What that means is it's a, it was just like a way for people to write to where they're bringing all the attention to the center of the text. And in this case, the center of our text is the ascension of Elijah. And um, so the sermon, the sermon points that I make today are actually going to follow this structure as we see it. Um, so we're going to consider the form. The reason I did that is the form that God's Word takes is just as important as the content God's Word takes. He actually uses the form to teach us as well. And so that's why we're looking at that. The second thing I want us to kind of consider as we delve into chapter 2 comes from Luke 24, 25 through 27. Uh, this is a principle that Jesus himself taught his disciples and how to read the Old Testament. He says this, this is the road to Emmaus. He just died and re- resurrected, and he appears to these two disciples who are really sad. They don't, know, they don't even know it's Jesus, and he says this. Uh, he said to them, O foolish ones... And slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken, was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. And so there are things concerning Jesus in the Old Testament, in the prophets, in Moses, the book of Moses, right? Uh, Later on, these same disciples, they declare to themselves as Jesus had left them. They they say, did not this man open the scriptures to us? And so today, Remedy, as we look at uh, the prophets, uh, we want the scriptures to be open to us. So we're going to look where Jesus is also found in this text. So our first point um, is removing the head from Elisha. And then I write a, a kind of a point addressing us directly. Church, we must remain with Christ. What we're going to see in this um, little passage in verses 1-6 through 6 is Elisha is steadfastly remaining with Elijah, his head. So verse 1 sets up the entire narrative account. Yahweh was about to take up Elijah by a whirlwind. Um, whirlwind is a kind of a common imagery throughout the Old Testament. Uh, God often discloses revelation concerning himself through a storm. Or a whirlwind. Probably the most famous one that comes to mind would be Job 38 and Job 40. When God finally answers. It's the first speech he's going to give after all these speeches. And he comes to Job in a storm. And he reveals more of himself. And so this is already foreshadowing to us that not only is Elijah going to be taken away. But he's going to be taken away in a manner in which God is going to reveal something about himself to maybe Elisha, maybe the people who are witnessing it, and also the people who now are reading this text and listening to this text. And so as we start, um, Elijah is told he's traveling from Gilgal. And uh, commentator C.F. Kill tells us there's a, there's a couple of Gilgals. This one is likely the one that is in the mountains, uh, referred to in Joshua 8.35. The reason he says this, the other Gilgal is next to Jericho and the pattern in which they walk, it would literally be like they go from Gilgal away, then they come back to Jericho and then they go back away again and it doesn't make sense. So this is likely the Joshua one in the mountains and we'll talk about that more later. So there's two things that are going to happen each time as they're traveling. First, Elijah commands Elisha to stay and not go with him. Yahweh's telling him to go to these places. Wait here, right? And each time, Elisha is going to respond to him with the same exact phrase. As Yahweh lives and as your soul lives, I will not leave you. Verse 2, verse 4, verse 6. Um, this is a common kind of oath structure. He's making an oath or a pledge or even a kind of a covenant uh, with Elijah. Uh, we see examples of this like in Judges and in Ruth. One that jumps right to our heads could be like when Naomi is telling Ruth go back to your people, go back to your lands, there's nothing for you here. And then Ruth clings to Naomi, right, and says, your people are my people, your God is my God. Um, this this phraseology is common throughout the Old Testament. And so Elisha here is saying three times, I mean, he has three opportunities to turn away. And each time he responds with this just steadfast, I'm with you until the end. Like, I'm going to cling to you until you're taken away. I'm not, I'm not even going to blink. The second thing that happens, uh, three times as well, the sons of the prophets show up. We'll talk about them more a little bit later. At each place, they show up at Bethel, they show up at Jericho, and then they show up later on at the Jordan River. At Bethel and Jericho, they tell Elisha this phrase. They say, do you, not, do you know that today Yahweh will take your master from your head? In the ESV, it says uh, your master from over you. In the Hebrew, it actually says from over your head. Head Head is the Hebrew word that's in the text. And so um, it's, it's this idea of like he's taking your head away, your, your master, right? Your, um, in the same way that we think of Jesus as like headship, he's authority figure over us. Elijah was an authority figure over Elisha and these sons of prophets. And so that's going to be in, uh, important. The reason I'm drawing that later on, there's a pun that the author of Kings is going to make involving the concept of head. That's going to reveal the text to us a little bit clearly. So keep that under your hat, on your head. There's my my joke. Um, So as we're looking at this, there's another thing, right? Let's consider the lens of Christ. Where's Jesus at in this passage? There's a couple of layered threads that run throughout the entire Bible. Uh, The first one might be Moses, right? And so uh, commentator Peter Lightheart points out to us, in this text... We're reliving the Exodus. Moses is like Elijah, and Joshua is like Elisha. Moses has his protege, Joshua. Elijah has his protege, um, Elisha. And so, how is it like the Exodus? Uh, Peter Lightheart points out this. Uh, 2 Kings 1 mentions the death of Ahab. This would be the Pharaoh figure. And then it details the death of his and Jezebel's son, Ahaziah. This is the Passover and the death of the firstborn, right? Elijah and Elisha then depart the land whose gods are defeated and whose prince is dead. And we're going to pick up on that more later. And we'll see some other uh, Exodus themes, but just keep that in your pockets for now. The other thing is, is it doesn't just move backwards in time. So... Hey, they're like Moses before him and Joshua before him, but they're like something that comes after. Elijah and Elisha are very much like Christ and the church. Lightheart writes this, Elijah is a type of Jesus himself and Elisha of the disciples who continued Jesus' ministry after his ascension. Elisha first appears plowing a field, but he leaves home and family, 1 Kings 19, like the disciples of Jesus leave their fishing nets and their tax booths. Uh, at the beginning of 2 Kings 2, Elisha doggedly follows after his master, Elijah, uh, in the same way that the disciples do. Because he follows Elijah, Elisha becomes his, uh, like his master. And after Elijah departs, he immediately begins to replicate elijah's ministry in the same way that after jesus departs and sends his spirit to the disciples they begin to replicate his ministry and even so the the 50 uh, sons of the prophets they recognize that elisha the spirit of elijah is on him in the same way in acts 4 13 when the uh, disciples the apostles are preaching the same pharisees the same uh, council who crucified christ they're like, who are these guys? They're not educated. But they had recognized that they had been with Jesus, Acts 4.13. Because they had been with their master, they now are starting to look like their master. So the same thing is going here. And so this really applies to us. We ought to cling to Christ and follow him just as doggedly as Elisha clings to Elijah. Colossians 2 says this kind of in a negative way. Um, Let no one disqualify you, insisting on asceticism and the worship of angels, going on in detail about visions puffed up without reason by a sensuous mind, and not holding fast to the head, from whom the whole body, nourished and knit together through its joints and ligaments, grows with a growth from God. And so the question is, like the sons of the prophets, they're saying, your head's about to be removed, we could ask ourselves, has our head been removed? Or is he still here? Right, and we'll we'll keep teasing that out. So our second point, second part of the text is the witness of the fifty and the first crossing of Jericho. And here I say, church, we must know the power of Christ, our head. And this is going to come to us from verses seven through eight. Verse seven says uh, that the fifty men of the sons of the prophets they stood at a distance, kind of watching. The Jordan. They're presumably watching what's going to happen. What's Elijah and Elisha going to do when they're at the Jordan River? Uh, The number 50 uh, conceptually links us back to chapter 1, right? The three sets of 50. But there's also another way, uh, another kind of reminder of the 50. Not too long ago, Elijah was on Mount Horeb, which is Sinai, the place where Moses received the law. And he was feeling, he's in a cave, he's hiding from Jezebel, right? And he's basically giving his speech to God about how he is alone. He feels absolutely lonely, there's no other prophets, he's the only one standing up uh, for God's law. And then uh, we're reminded in 1 Kings 18.13 that Obadiah had actually hidden the prophets of God in various caves by 50s. And so uh, it's a contrast here of where... Back in First Kings 18, they were hidden in caves by 50s. Now they're openly, publicly by 50s coming out into these cities that were once idolatrous and turning against God. Uh, kind, kind of a, a, a side note here um, with that since we are talking about Elijah and his feeling of loneliness. I think people uh, struggle with the idea of feeling like they belong um, to things. Like I mean, at least I do. Uh, so this could take shape or take place in many ways. It could, it could take place in the context of singleness. It could take place in the context of just like friendships or the lack thereof. It could take place in the context of you're literally in a crowd of people, but you still feel alone, right? You're, you're, there's 50 people around you, but you still feel alone. Uh, it can take uh, shapes in many different ways. Um, but I just want to speak from, the, from another passage, right? You are not alone, And two kind of things to do, lean into the body of Christ, um, but the second thing is to cling to Christ himself. It says in Romans 8, 9, anyone who has the spirit of Christ belongs to him. And so you belong, you belong to Christ. If the spirit of Christ dwells in you, you belong to him, press into his body. So as we're looking at the sons of the prophets, this is schools that have been established likely by Elijah. And um, again, we just talked about their public ministry. Uh, The phrase sons, it likely has kind of two indicators. First, they're not quite yet prophets. They're still going through this school, so to speak, under Elijah. Uh, But the second thing is is that they have a father figure, right? The head of the school, so to speak. And in this case, that's Elijah. Now, I get this from later on in the text. Um, I think it's verse 12. Elisha cries out as Elijah is going up into heaven. He cries out, my father, my father, the chariots of Israel. So uh, likely these sons are kind of his disciples, right? And their father figure is Elijah. Thus, again, kind of teasing this idea that your head, your father is going to be taken from you soon. Um, So that's where that comes from. So verse 8 shows us that like Moses before him, Elijah is now going to part the body of water. He's going to part the Jordan. They're going to walk over on dry ground. And don't miss this. This is that, that prophet flavor. It's literally a prophetic slap to the face. Um, they are now leaving Israel. All right? Compare that to now Moses. They're leaving Egypt so that they can go into the promised land. Now they're leaving the promised land. It's comparing Israel, the current state of Israel, to the state of Egypt when Moses originally lit, That's how far the people of God have fallen here. And so they're leaving out. Um, Robert Alter says it this way, the point of crossing the Jordan is to have Elijah pass through this liminal zone and be on the other side beyond the land of Israel uh, proper before he's taken. So the 50 come here. They're standing. They see this, that they walk over. And they're they're coming to witness the power of their head, Elijah Elijah, and uh, Elisha. So church... I would ask this question. Have we not witnessed a greater power in our head, Christ? He didn't part the water. He calmed it and walked upon it. He didn't bid Elisha to walk with him across dry ground, but rather he bid Peter to walk with him on top the water itself. Uh, he, he's not just a, merely a man of God who calls down fire, but rather he's the God who became man, who ministered to us in humility and with healing. We serve a much more powerful head, Christ himself, than Elijah. And so the question for us is, do we know this power? Do we know Christ and his power? Have we clung to him? So our third point, Elisha asks for a double portion of Elijah's spirit. And this is just blank obvious. Church, we need to ask our Father for the Holy Spirit. We need to ask our Father for the Holy Spirit. So after three series of following Elijah closely... He turns to Elisha after they cross the Jordan, and he says this, Ask what I may do for you before I'm taken away. And Elisha responds, Please let there be a double portion of your spirit upon me. Uh, This literally means double mouthful. It's kind of a food pun. uh, that I want double the portion of food of your spirit. Um, So he's comparing the spirit to food uh, here. And then uh, this is, so what, what exactly, what is he asking for here? Does he mean like, I want to be double the man you are? Uh, what exactly does this mean? Uh, there's there's kind of two views of this, uh, double portion. The first one comes from Deuteronomy 21:17, says this, But he shall acknowledge the firstborn, the son of the unloved, by giving him a double portion of all that he has, for he is the first fruits of his strength. This was a law put into place to actually guard against polygamy and kind of the destruction that can come out from it, where... The man loves one wife more than the other wife, and therefore loves one son more than the other son. And this would guarantee that he still owes his firstborn son the double portion. And so, in this light, what, what Elisha is asking is let me be the first more, most of your disciples, let me be the firstborn of your children. Let me have that portion of your spirit. Uh, The second thing is, is he could literally be asking for, let me let the power of God be doubled in my ministry than your ministry. Um, Interesting enough, his ministry is a lot longer than Elijah's when it's covered in 2 Kings. There's a lot more chapters spent on Elisha than Elijah. And then another, you know, there's debate about how to count the miracles exactly of Elijah and Elisha, but by one count, <laughs> uh, Elisha did 16 miracles and Elijah did eight. So it would be literally double the amount of miracles of Elijah. So both of these things can be true of the text um, when he's asking for a double portion here. And so uh, Peter Lightheart points out this: Elisha did. Well, actually, I just said that. Never mind. Um, so 1 Kings three five. This is uh, when um, God comes to Solomon and he says this, Ask what I shall give to you. And it's kind of reminiscent. It kind of echoes the same question now that Elijah asks to his disciple. Ask what I may do for you. Uh, In 1 Kings, Solomon asks for wisdom. And ultimately, because he disobeys God's law, that fails him. Here... Elisha doesn't ask for God's wisdom, but rather he asks for the spirit that God put within Elijah to fill him. Um, Instead of wisdom, he asks for God himself to fill him. And so kind of continuing our looking through this text through the lens of Christ from Luke 24. If Elijah is a type of Christ and Elisha is a type of of the church, it would seem obvious what it's telling us, right? That we ought to be seeking for a double portion of... Of the Spirit, We ought to be asking God for His Spirit. It says this in Luke, "...and I tell you, ask and it will be given you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds. And to the one who knocks it will be opened. What father among you, if his son asks for a fish, will instead of a fish give him a serpent? Or if he asks for an egg, will give him a scorpion? If you then who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children... How much more will the Heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask Him? Christ all the time is whispering to our souls, Ask what I may do for you. Respond to Him, O great Christ, my head, my life, my Master, my Lord, my Savior. Give to us Your Spirit. Give us a double portion. Will You not live through us and live in us? Treat us as Your sons and Your daughters, Your firstborn. So we need to ask church for the Holy Spirit because it says here in Luke that he gives the Holy Spirit to his children who ask him. Um, Our point four, and this is the climax. So we've been climbing the mountain. Now we're at the center of the text uh, that uh, Elijah is about to be taken and then we're about to descend. So the chariots separate. The chariots are going to separate Elijah from Elisha. Elijah is going to ascend and then Elisha is going to separate or rend his clothes into two parts. Church, our sacrificial lamb is seated at the right hand of the Father in glory. This comes from verses 11 through 12. So this is the climax of uh, the chapter. And also in the gospel, if we think of it, the incarnation, Jesus' birth, is kind of the foundation stone for the gospel message, the life, the death, the resurrection. And the ascension is kind of the capstone, right? It's the end. It's the thing that holds it all together. And so in the same way, the ascension is the climax of the gospel. Elijah's ascension is the climax in this text. And so in verse 11, we see that a chariot of fire and horses of fire separate Elijah and Elisha. And then Elijah goes up by a whirlwind uh, into the heaven, thus fulfilling uh, verse 1. Uh, C.F. Kill writes this as God himself buried Moses and his grave has not been found to this day. So he did fetch Elijah to heaven in a still more glorious manner in a fiery chariot with fiery horses so that 50 men who searched for him did not find him in all the earth. And so as they're walking by the Jordan, this area where Elijah is taken up is within it's within a 10 mile radius. We don't know exactly because it doesn't tell us where he is. But we know that it's within a 10-mile radius of Mount Nebo. This is where Moses goes up on the mountain. He's able to see the promised land, and then he dies on the mountain. And then the text in Deuteronomy tells us that God essentially buried him, and we don't know where his grave is. And so Elijah is literally taken around the same geographic location that Moses himself is taken, thus connecting, again, Moses uh, to Elijah. The chariots of fire and horses of fire, it, it, it continues like this theme. Elijah, he's the fire guy, right? He calls down fire on the altar. He calls down fire on the the, the sets of 50 soldiers that are there to arrest and potentially kill him. Uh, he's taken up in fire. But it also continues through the ministry of Elisha. Uh, the imagery comes up again later in 2 Kings chapter 6. Uh, Elisha and his servant are on kind of a tower, and they're surrounded by the, these uh, men, this army of Syria. And uh the guy's freaking out. The servant's like, oh my gosh, we're going to die. And Elisha, Elisha just says, Lord, open his eyes so that he can see. And then he sees chariots of fire and horses of fire and armies and hosts unnumbered in the spiritual realm, right? And so the imagery comes up again there. Uh, in verse 12, we have the confirmation, right? The condition of Elisha receiving this double portion was if he saw. And verse 12 tells us he saw, right? So he cries out. Uh, my father, my father, the chariot of Israel and his horsemen. The phrase, the chariot of Israel and his horsemen, is actually being proclaimed about Elijah. It's not being proclaimed about what he's seeing. It's actually being proclaimed about Elijah. It's kind of an interesting connection. Philip Rankin says it this way. Uh, this is a reference to Elijah and his significance to the people of Israel. According to God's word, the Israelites were not permitted to trust in horses and chariots. So Psalm 27, uh, Deuteronomy 20, verse 1. Instead, they were called to depend upon God's protection. And so in this case, what's going on is... Elisha is seeing God's army being taken into heaven because that's who Elijah was. God was using Elijah, the prophetic ministry, to carry out his word and fight the battles against the Baals and the idolaters in Israel. And so now, the father, right, is being taken up. And the question then remains, did he leave us without soldiers? Did he leave us without an army? Is his ministry, is this it? Like, is this going to, that's kind of what we're sitting on the precipice of asking, are we alone? And so Elisha then rends his clothes, he, he rips his clothes. And this is kind of a sign of mourning, likely because, I mean, I mean he's been following Elijah for a good long time. This is his father, right, his, his close friend, and he's been taken from him. But also it's a sign of repentance. And this could be possibly that because he witnessed the fiery chariots and the glory of God taking Elijah to heaven, he's literally saying, my eyes have seen glory. And he's repenting. He's humbling himself before God. And so he separates his clothes, and then Elijah's cloak falls down to him. The next time we see, uh, interesting enough, the next time we see Moses and Elijah together, it's so awesome. This is, like, you can't make this stuff up. The next time you see Elijah and Moses together is on a mountain in the Promised Land, when Jesus takes John, James, and Peter up and transfigures, and He reveals all of His glory. And then Elisha, or sorry, Elijah and Moses appear, and they discuss with Him about His departure. Um, and so you see that right in the connection there. Uh, so the next time you see Him is with Christ Himself in His glory. Dis- discussing his departure. And so the Bible is literally telling us, this is not about Elisha and Elijah. This is not about Moses and Joshua. This is about Jesus and the church. Um, and so we serve a Christ who died on the cross, rose from the grave, ascended to the right hand of God, the father. And right now he sits at the right hand of God mediating on our behalf, giving to us His Spirit, blessing us with every spiritual blessing, confessing our righteousness before the Father, and it's there where our life is hidden in Christ with God. Right? I mean, amen. And so, uh, you also might see this as an offering. It's it's reminiscence of offering language from Leviticus 1. Elijah is ascending up like the offering would ascend up. When it's being burnt, right? A burnt offering. He's ascending up as a pleasing aroma to God. Christ, our sacrificial lamb, He died and He raised and now He ascends up not only as a pleasing aroma Himself, but He brings with Him His church as a pleasing aroma before the Father. Um, And so again, church, uh, our sacrificial lamb sits at the right hand of God in glory. And as Ephesians tells us, we've been seated with Him in heavenly places um, as well. So point three, we're now coming down off the mountain. We're going back down. And point three, I put an apostrophe next to it because it's supposed to line up with the original three. So it's three prime, I guess, if you want to say it that way. Elijah's mantle or his cloak, his hairy cloak, uh, falls to Elisha. Church, God has given us the Holy Spirit. He has. Not only do we ask for it, but he has given us the Holy Spirit. Uh, this comes from verse 13. We see Elijah's cloak, his hairy garment in the in the Hebrew in chapter 1, verse 8. Uh, it's actually bale of hair, and it's making it's making fun of the bales. Baal just means Lord, and so it means Lord of hair. We'll get into that a little bit later. It's coming. To, keep it under your hat on your head. Uh, the sec the succession is complete, and now we wait in the text to see did he get what he asked for? Did he get the double portion? Is Elijah, He's got his cloak. But is he going to have his power? Um, and so we, uh, we, we can see this. Um, more of our typology here. The name of Joshua, the name of Jesus, that's the same name in, in Hebrew. It's Yeshua, Yahweh, Yahweh saves. The name Elisha means my God saves. And so conceptually they're linked there. Moses brings the law, and by the law he dies on the mountain outside of the land of Israel. Joshua is the one who goes in and takes the promised land. Elijah, Elijah has gone out and now he's been taken up into heaven. And now Elisha is going to go back into the promised land and take the land. So now we're in the conquest narrative, the second conquest narrative. It's not Joshua now. It's the new Joshua. It's Elisha. And interesting enough, he's going to cross the Jordan River just like Joshua did. So he takes the cloak, right? And he strikes it. And he says, where is the God of Elisha? So Jesus has also ascended, promised us the Holy Spirit. It's been given to us in Acts 2, Pentecost, right? He's given the church his Holy Spirit. The mantle has fallen down to the church. He also gave us conquest orders. We call it the Great Commission. Go and make disciples of all the nations, right? Teaching them to observe all that Jesus has done and baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And so the same scripture that's describing these events of Joshua and Elisha now are bearing witness to us that if we have believed in Jesus Christ, we also have the Spirit of God. And we also have a set of orders to now walk in power to conquest the land, so to speak. So point two, the second crossing of the Jordan and the second witness of the 50. Church, the power of Christ is in us. In verse 14, we we find the answer as to whether or not Elisha received the double portion. He walks up with the cloak, he rolls it up, and he strikes the water just as his master did. And he asks this question, where is Yahweh, the God of Elijah? He strikes the water, and it parts. And then he crosses over. And in verses 15 through 18, we get the first part of the conquest. And where's the first place he comes? The same place Joshua came in the first part of the conquest, Jericho. So now we see him arriving at Jericho. And the the 50, as they're seeing him come across the water, they say this, the spirit of Elijah rests on Elisha. And we might add, just as the spirit of God rested on Jesus when he was baptized in the same Jordan River. That's just great. Uh, They seem to be under the impression that Elijah uh, was kind of carried away. So they're like, we need to send out a search party. The spirit just dropped him somewhere. So let's sent out a search party. Elisha's like, no, he went up into heaven. But they badger him to the point of embarrassment. And so finally he just relents. Uh, this, By the way, this embarrassment phrase, um, it's found in Judges 3.25. It's also found in 2 Kings 8.11. Um, when Elisha is staring at a guy so long, he's like literally staring at him. And then tell the guy's embarrassed. Uh, so it's kind of like this idea: imagine someone just like locks eyes with you. Yeah, I'm locking eyes with you uh, until that like you know it gets a little embarrassing or uncomfortable. Um, so that's the phrase here. So they're literally badging him, badgering him to the point where he's just like, just go. They do it. They search for three days. They can't find anyone, uh, and then he says to him, "Did I not say to you?" do not go. <laughs> He's just reminding them. The second story of Jericho, so that's the first one. The second story of Jericho involves the people of the city. They come out to him and they say the city's good, but the water is bad and the, the, the ground or the earth is barren. Joshua six twenty six. the first conquest, tells us after the Jericho walls fell down and Jericho was leveled, uh, that whoever rebuilds it, there's a curse that will be on them. And interesting enough, during the reign of Ahab, it's rebuilt by a guy named Heal uh, from Bethel, which is the next city we're going to get to in First uh, Kings sixteen through thirty-four. And so there's this idea that Jericho's been rebuilt, but there was a curse upon the person who rebuilt it, and it's not flourishing. It's not. It's not healthy. Uh, Jericho isn't, and so the phrase "ground of barren," the ground is barren, can mean that like agriculturally, it's not bearing fruit, uh, but it can also mean that the food itself is actually causing barrenness um, in women. Uh, and the reason why it can mean that from the language itself, but also later on, when Elijah Elisha heals the water, he says it'll no longer give miscarriage um, to women, so it can also mean that. And so Elisha asks in verse uh, 20 for a new bowl and salt, and he casts the salt at the source of the water and he speaks a word over the water. He says, This, thus says Yahweh, I have healed these waters. There will not be any more death or barrenness from it. Uh, Mark Shavalis says, This salt is used to combat the curse because the curse is connected to rebellion. And salt is actually seen as symbolically something that counteracts rebellion. This comes from Judges 9, 45, which is also a prophet book. And then it's also seen as a means of consecration or setting something apart. This comes from Leviticus 2, 11 through 13. It also impedes yeast, right? It slows down yeast, and yeast itself is symbolic for rebellion. So those those are some of the reasons why maybe salt's being used here. Another interesting thing is, is in Numbers 18, 19, salt is actually connected to covenant, an act of restoring the covenant. They call it the covenant of salt. And so here we have a contrast. In the first conquest, the walls of Jericho are leveled and everyone is destroyed. Here, in the second conquest, God heals Jericho and restores it and brings health to it, and speaks a favorable, gracious word to Jericho through the uh, ministry of Elisha. So instead of destroying it, which is what we might expect of this new Joshua, he heals it. Verse 22 serves to confirm that his word uh, was so effective that even to this day, the day of the writing of Second Kings, it is still was healthy and flourishing. And so we can now kind of go back into our typology Jesus has spoken a better word to us, a word of salvation, a word of healing. We might ask the question, church, where is Yahweh, the God of Elijah? And Jesus says this, on this rock I will build my church. The gates of hell will not prevail against it. We might ask again, where is the God of Elijah? And Jesus again says this in John, receive the Holy Spirit as he breathes on his disciples. We might ask again, where is the God of Elijah? And Jesus again says, the glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they might be one, even as we are one. I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one. We might again ask, where is the God of Elijah? And Jesus again says, truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do. And greater works than these will he do because I am going to the Father. The power of Christ is in us. Where is Yahweh the God of Elijah? He's in all who believe in Jesus Christ. He is in his church. So our last, our bottom, we're we're at the bottom of the mountain. One prime, the bald head of Elisha. Hard not to laugh, but we'll, you're going to understand soon. Church, we are not bald. You're going to understand, I promise. Church, we are not bald, for Christ and his authority is with us. So verse 23 says, Elisha went up there uh, from Jericho to Bethel, and on the road some small boys came from Bethel and mocked him saying, Go, go up, you bald head. They said it twice for good measure. Go up, you bald head. In verse 24, Elisha responds by, he turns, he looks, and then he calls down the curse of God on him kind of drastic, right? Uh, and so uh, because the phrase small boys is one way to translate this, many view this passage with suspicion. Uh, would it? Would a prophet of God really call down God's curse on some small children who are just mocking, right, about someone's baldness? Uh, would God do that? And then would God honor this prophet who did call down those words? Because in this text, we have both. This, this text was so um, kind of, met with suspicion that the early rabbis, not all of them, but some of them, were so outraged that they actually asserted this never happened, and the phrase, neither bears nor forest, became a Hebrew idiom for a cock and bull story. Right? So literally, this isn't true. Some of the early rabbis, because they just couldn't wrap their brain around why this would happen um, this way. But yet, here we have a story inspired, in the inspired word of God, being preached to the people of Christ to this very day. And so I don't believe that this story is made up. And I would also say that maybe there's something else going on in the text that might enlighten us here. And so we're going to look kind of at four things here. First, he's traveling to Bethel. This continues the idea of conquest in Joshua 7.2. He goes from Jericho to a place called Ai, Ai. And it's also around Bethel. It's the same area, Bethel and Ai are uh, notice of... Uh, It's the same area. And so, at the Battle of Ai, they famously lose. And they lose because there's sin in the camp. A man, during the conquest of Jericho, had hidden some of the treasure that was devoted to destruction and put it under his tent, and therefore God caused them to lose the battle at Bethel. And so, idolatry is already kind of here in the conquest story. But Bethel has a rich history beyond that. It's where Abram first pitched his tent after receiving the very first promise in Genesis 12, 1-4, which is probably one of the most important words ever spoken in, in the Bible because it goes all the way through the Bible and we find out Jesus is the son. He's the offspring of Abraham. Um, and so it's where Abraham first pitches his tent. It's also where Jacob dreams of a ladder that reaches between heaven and earth and angels are ascending and descending on it. And at the top is Yahweh himself. Jesus makes the claim that he's the ladder in John one He He tells uh, Philip and I think uh, Nathaniel, he's like... You'll see greater things in these. Truly, truly, I say to you that the, the angels will be ascending and descending upon the Son of Man. And so he's making the claim that he's actually the latter here in Bethel. Uh, so it's got a rich history there. But recently, in our context, Bethel was one of the two cities that Jeroboam, when the kingdom split, and one came went, went this way and the other stayed in Judah, right? When the kingdom split, Jeroboam sets up two golden calves, just like Aaron in the Exodus, Right. And one of the cities in which the calves are placed is Bethel. And so it becomes the capital of idolatry in the northern kingdom. So it's one of the centers. And actually this refrain, uh, they did not depart from the sins of Jeroboam, son of Nabat, happens over and over again to describe the reigns of kings in Israel throughout Second Kings. They didn't depart. They didn't depart from this sin, this golden calf worship. It's a really big deal. So Bethel, rich history, idolatry is there. Second, the phrase small boys comes from two Hebrew words. One means little or insignificant. It can literally mean insignificant, like in terms of like their uh, their um, their reputation. It's insignificant. It can also mean small or little. The other one literally means youths, and it has a wide range of uh, ages that it can apply to it can apply to really young children and it can apply up to 40 year old males um and so for instance in first kings twelve eight, rehoboam when he's uh giving the famous pinky speech uh where he basically says you know i'm my my pinky's thicker than us my father solomon's thighs he's basically saying, i'm twice the man solomon is or a hundredfold i don't know uh and he's giving that famous speech and then he splits israel well he listens to the counsel of the old men he rejects their counsel, and then he goes to the youths, the people who had grown up with him. So 12.8 says this, But he abandoned the counsel of the old men gave, that they gave him and took counsel with the young men, same Hebrew word here, uh, who had grown up with him and stood before him. So here the same word is used to indicate 30 to 40-year-old men who had grown up with um, Jeroboam. Or sorry, Rehoboam. Which brings us back to the context of the two golden calves again, because that's where Israel split and then the two golden calves are split. So the third thing, the insult itself gives us more idolatrous background. All right? The insult itself. And so here's the head pun, right? Uh, so they're saying, go up, you bald head. In 2 Kings eight, it says, Elijah wore a garment of hair with a belt of leather about his waist. Some have actually translated that as, he was a hairy man. And so the Hebrew for the garment of hair is actually the bale of hair. He's the lord of hair. And it means he can be the owner of a, he's got a head of hair, or it can mean like his garment is really hairy. We think it's the garment because later on John the Baptist is described this way, in Matthew 3, 4, and people uh, consider him to be like Elijah. And so here's the way it goes. They're saying, just like the prophets warned, your head's going to be taken from us. These insignificant young men are literally saying, go up, baldy. Go up is alluding to Elijah's ascension. They're saying, your hair's not here anymore. He's up in heaven. Why don't you go join him? We see the hairy cloak that you're wearing. Yeah, we see Elijah's cloak on you. You have no power. Why don't you just go up and join him? So they're making fun of Elijah's ascension. And they're making fun of the fact that he's wearing this hairy cloak from Elijah. But they're saying you're bald. You have no hair. You don't have the same authority that Elijah had. And so that that's essentially what they're saying. They're A.K.A. you're powerless. And then the fourth reason is the section itself parallels the first section, which is all about the head being taken up from Elijah. So... Church, the enemies of God will mock the church the way they mock the head of the church. Nonetheless, like God was with Elijah, God is now with Elisha. As the Spirit of God rested on Jesus, He now rests upon His church. We are not bald. And so 2 Peter, I want to end with 2 Peter 1, 16-21. Peter's describing the transfiguration. And he says that we actually have a more fully confirmed thing than him witnessing the transfiguration itself. And it's the prophetic word, right? What we just heard today from the prophets. For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. But we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. We ourselves heard this very voice born from heaven, for we were with him on that holy mountain. And we have the prophetic word more fully confirmed, to which you will do well to pay attention to as a light shining, a lamp shining in the dark place, until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Knowing this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation, for no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. May we learn to see the riches of Christ in His Word. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for Jesus, that He is in us, that Your Spirit has been given to us. We ask that You would just uh, make us not just hearers of Your Word, but doers. Give us the power to walk according to your statutes and your laws. Allow us to reflect and see again the glory of the Father in the face of the Son. In Jesus' name, Amen.